which is the dad joke. The dad joke is this very interesting art form. It, it needs to not be crude, so you don't get slapped or get phone calls home from school um, as your kids imitate you. And it needs to appeal to a kind of person whose favorite kind of joke is trying to burp the alphabet. And it needs to be equal parts funny and painful. So it's, there's a lot to try to accomplish in a dad joke. But here's some that I pulled off the internet, which is probably the only redeeming thing the internet has, is that it shares dad jokes with us. All right. Dad joke number one. Did you guys hear about the kidnapping at school this week? Don't worry, he woke up. I feel no shame. I was thinking about going on an all-almond diet, but that's just nuts. Yeah, that's right. I can. I feel like there's some marriage counseling in the works with the way <laughs> someone's looking at me right now. You know, the rotation of the earth, it really makes my day. There we go. Redemption. And last and probably least. Dad, did you get a haircut? No, son, I got them all cut. A haircut? No, I got them all cut. And someone? <laughs> if you have to explain it, it's already too late, right? Well, there you go. We've just survived the worst part of the message. I want to continue going through the story of Joseph. It's been about a month since I've been up here, and so... There you go. And so I thought that the message today is called A Few Good Men from Genesis 41, but I thought it might be helpful just to do a bit of a recap. We're in the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis starts with God creating the entire universe by the power of his word. And the high point of making the universe is that he makes male and female in his image and gives his world to them for them to rule over and to fill and to make fruitful and to fill up with his glory, essentially. That's the point. He makes a, a creation that is meant to be filled with the glory of God through human beings. But Adam and Eve um, fall to temptation and rebel against the one command that God gave them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of evil and are um, cursed and exiled from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. But God, in the cursing of the serpent promises that there will be one of the woman's seed that God will raise up to crush the head of the serpent and really to undo the fall of man. Now the story goes on as the world is filled up with human beings and they're filled, the earth is mostly getting filled with the violence and unbelief of human beings so that God floods the entire world in a judgment to wash it away, so to speak, but rescues righteous Noah by telling him there is going to be a flood and that he should build a boat, and Noah believes and builds the boat and thus saves his family and starts over creation again. But sin is still in the world, so um, the problem wasn't actually fixed. And so God calls a man named Abraham, that's in our top right-hand corner, and says that he is going to give Abraham a land, 
and offspring, and that the entire world or all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through Abraham's offspring. The one problem is that uh, he and his wife are super old and super barren. And so God has to overcome their, their situation by miracle. And Abraham ha- and Sarah have a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son's name Jacob and Esau. And Jacob has a bunch of sons whose names I definitely won't be able to repeat, but one of the cool names is Zebulun. Um, and he has two wives, not by choice, and his, the wife he intended to marry in the first place has two sons named Jacob and Benjamin, sorry, Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph is favored both by Jacob but also by the Lord. And the Lord tells Joseph and his family that one day Joseph is going to be a ruler, And the family, the sons, respond angrily. And instead of submitting to God's word, they turn against Joseph and sell him into slavery where he's taken to Egypt. And is first faithfully serving in Potiphar's house before he's accused of attacking Potiphar's wife by his wife who's lying about him and then is faithfully serving in Pharaoh's prison. And that's a quick recap of where we've been And now we're going to read the story of how God gets Joseph out of prison and begins to bless the world. This is Genesis chapter 41. It's a longer chapter, so I'm going to do my best to to sound engaging as I read. And at the same time, I invite you to do your part. It is true, I'm not a PlayStation 4. And you can work to pay attention, young people. Genesis chapter 4. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed on the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing in one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving us Sorry, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream you can interpret it joseph answered pharaoh it is not in me god will give pharaoh a favorable answer 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed on the reed grass. And seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. And when they'd eaten them, no one would have known they'd eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. And then I awoke, and I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered and thin and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and let him and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the good sorry, for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. You guys are doing great. Don't let me lose you now. Everyone breathe in. Okay, pull your ears out a little bit more if you need to. Just a few more verses. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of, fine, garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Anybody here over the age of 30? What were you doing when you turned 30? 
And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in cities. He put in every city the food from the field around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Pot- Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. Manasseh sounds like the word for forget. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim sounds like the word for twice fruitful. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph said to them, as Joseph had said, there was famine in all the land, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph ordered all the storehouses opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe in the land. Those were the very words of God. Great job, everybody. Give yourselves a little clap. (laughs) Longest scripture reading in a sermon so far. Um. I want to just make a little comment about this story and then we'll apply it by looking at Joseph and then looking at Pharaoh and how they respond to God speaking to them. Uh, Number one, just about the dreams. Uh, Pharaoh's two dreams, um, just so we understand what's going on there, they are a real warning from the Lord about how bad the famine is going to be. I want to show you a picture here. Uh, This is a picture of the Nile River from space or the River Nile. And I'm sure things have changed a little bit because geography doesn't stay the same over time. And this story is like 35, 4,000 years old. And so I'm sure things have changed a bit. But what do you notice about this picture of the River Nile? It's the green part, surrounded by all the not green part. And this is what made the River Nile, which is I think the longest river in the world, so precious in the Bible times is because it was a very reliable source of water in a place where water was not reliable. And every year, I think it's Lake Victoria in Africa, during the rainy seasons, the lake will fill up and then it will send this big flood down the River Nile, which will overflow the banks, which means all the um, land around the River Nile is very full of nutrients, whatever the technical word is there. And so Egypt, throughout centuries of human history, has been the place where there's always food. And that's typically where empires try to conquer. Because if you control Egypt, you have enough food for your empire, period. Because you always know there's water, and you always know that there's another time of replenishing the land coming. And so, you know, Rome would fight over Egypt, and different nations would fight over Egypt to try to control it, because this is the breadbasket of um, the ancient Near East. And it's always green, even when everything else is deserty. So I just want to point out that when God was talking to, to Pharaoh about how bad the 
the famine was going to be, the cows came out of the Nile. So he has two dreams about the two kinds of food, right? There's like animal food, and then there's plant food, and he has a dream about each kind of food. And it starts with the animal food, and the animals come out of the Nile, and then the famine comes out of the Nile and gobbles up the cows so that they don't even look like they've eaten everything. And that's God's way of saying, the Nile River isn't going to be able to do anything for you. Because the Egyptians always thought, no matter what's going on in Canaan, no matter what's going on anywhere else, they can have good seasons, bad seasons, they can have too much rain, they can have too little rain, we're going to be okay because we've got the Nile. And God's saying to them, no, the famine is going to be so bad that even the Nile can't even begin to save you. This is how severe the famine is supposed to be. But we're also, when we're remembering Pharaoh's dreams about the corn coming up, did anybody else in this story have a dream about grain? Yeah, this is how Joseph's story all started out. He had a dream about the, the grain, people's grain all bowing down to him. So there's this connection here that Joseph's life starts off with God talking to him through this dream about food. And then Pharaoh also has a dream about food. Um, it's also good to point out for us that God is speaking directly to Pharaoh. Um, God cares about all the nations, and he has chosen since Abraham to be working his salvation through a particular people. And it starts off with Abraham and his descendants, then grows into the nation of Israel, and then over time, the nation of Israel not doing super well in, in representing God in the world. Um, the Messiah comes through the nation of Israel, and now God's people that he works through is the church who is connected to Jesus. But God is interacting with all the nations. He is the God of all the nations. There isn't actually another God in the world that other nations worship because they, though they worship these gods, they don't exist. So God is the God of every nation. He's the God of India. He's the God of all the Middle East. He's the God of Europe. He's the God of North and South America. He is the one and only true God. And every nation belongs to him no matter what people think. And so here's Pharaoh. He would have had gods. You know, there's this priest of On kicking around in there, whoever On is, probably the counterpart to the, the god Off or whatever it might be. And they're doing their thing. And, and God just shows up and starts talking to Pharaoh like he owns the place. Because he does. And we need to remember that wherever we go, we're going to, into God's world. And when we interact with people, there's a good chance that if we've been praying, that God's been working in their life, and it might just be part of our job to figure out what he's been doing. Thought I'd just throw that out there. I also want to point out one interesting thing to notice from this story about Joseph. Every time Joseph talks, he starts talking about God. I don't know if you picked that up. He talks four times in this story, which is a quite a bit. He responds to Pharaoh when Pharaoh says, I heard you can interpret dreams and he says it's not in me but god will do it and then he hears the dreams and he says god is talking to you pharaoh and then he gets exalted and he goes out and does his business in egypt and then he starts having these two kids and he names both of his two kids starting with god god made me forget and god made me fruitful every time joseph opens his mouth he's talking about god huh And one of the things to note when you're reading these Old Testament stories is that whenever people start talking, they're revealing who they are. 
I said before that when God says something happens and then someone starts talking and they kind of repeat exactly what God says, that's a good sign. Pharaoh did that, right? It says these are the dreams he had, and then Pharaoh repeats the dreams very accurately, except adding some of his own, the things that struck him. And he's like, the cows ate the fat cows, and they weren't any bigger. To which North Americans reply, what kind of diet pill is that? I want to get on it. (laughs) But it's actually a bad thing. And so Pharaoh is revealed to be an honest individual by relating the dreams honestly, and Joseph is revealed to be somebody who really has become completely obsessed with God because every time he speaks, he's talking about God, and he's seeing the world through God's perspective. Cool, huh? All right. Enough about that. Two big takeaways from this story. One looking at Joseph, and then the second one looking at Pharaoh. The first big takeaway from this chapter, from looking about Joseph, is how important believing God's word is and responding with faith-filled action. How important it is to hear God's word and respond with faith-filled action. And this is where I see this. As, as I read this story, Joseph is being presented to us as a do-over of Adam. Adam part two. And I want to point this out. Okay, In Genesis chapter two, when God made Adam, he reaches down into the dirt, he forms him into a man, and then he breathes life into him. Do you remember that? Okay, how does this chapter start with Joseph? Pharaoh, who's standing in the place of God, reaches down into the pit, which is the prison Joseph's been sitting in, draws him out, and washes him and gives him new clothes and makes him a man again. Okay, this, we're, this is, I see this as a connection. The Bible didn't have to bring this out. It could have just said they brought Joseph to Pharaoh and not even talked about this. But the, the spirit writing through Moses wants Moses to include these details. Next, what happens is that Joseph is presented with a word of God from God about food. Okay, remember when Adam is made, God brings him to the garden and says, you must eat of all the food that's in this garden, but you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. Okay, you remember that? Now, what is the word of God to Joseph and Pharaoh in this scene? It's almost the same thing. There is a ton of food coming your way. And after that, you're all going to die. It's so similar, it's not even funny. Lots of stuff to eat, but if you do this, you're going to die. Followed by lots of stuff to eat, And if you don't do something, you're all going to die. Okay? It's like a very similar word of God. When Adam was made by God, he was given a garden to tend and made fruitful. And when Joseph is pulled out of the pit and given the word of God, he is also commissioned with a garden. But it's not Eden or Eden. It's Egypt this time. God put the man into the garden and said, work this, work it and keep this. Make it fruitful. Make it and protect it. That's his mission. 
And with Joseph, he's also commissioned with a mission. Take all of Egypt, guard it, protect it, make it fruitful, and make us live. Okay, so here there's three details that Joseph and Adam are, these are very similar stories. And the Joseph story of coming out of the prison is meant to sound like Adam's story in the garden. And one final one that I, for me was the clincher, the one where I was like, dude, this is not an accident and I'm not making this up. After the whole fiasco happens in the garden and we go into Genesis chapter 4, it is, I believe, there's two child naming incidences, right? Eve has Cain and she says, I named him Cain because I got this child with the help of the Lord. You know, that kind of spirituality we do. Look what I did with God's help. Not the best naming story. And then after um, Abel is killed, they name Seth. And it says, God has appointed a child to replace Abel. And so there's two child naming stories. Oh man, I even missed one. There's a fifth one. Okay. With Joseph, there's also two child naming stories, right? This is Manasseh. I'm calling him this because God has made me forget my troubles. This is Ephraim because God has made me faithful in the land. And I should have, before I even talked about the child naming stories, mentioned that there's also a presenting of the bride story in each of these ones. Remember in Genesis chapter 2, Adam's wandering around. He's got a golden retriever. He's got one of those giant Lord of the Rings eagles to fly around on. He's got a unicorn to make the rainbow cereal whenever he wants it. But he doesn't have a real helpmeet. And so God puts him to sleep and pulls out a rib and seals it back up and then forms a bride and presents a bride to Adam. And Adam freaks out about it. And it's wonderful. Well, Pharaoh also presents a bride to Joseph in this story. And it's not just any bride, it's like a royal bride. It's a daughter of a high priest, it's a priestess. Which brings Joseph into the Egyptian royalty, interestingly. But So there's five details in this one chapter where it's like, like Adam getting pulled out of the ground, like Adam being given a, a food command with a warning, like Adam being given a garden to tend, like Adam being given a wife, and like Adam two children are named. And this is the Bible's way of saying, something big is happening here. Arm-waving worthy. Amen? And so with all this similarity, we're meant to ask the question, what is the big difference between these stories? And the big difference is, Adam received the word of God, but rejected it in unbelief. So everybody died. Joseph receives the word of God and humbly accepts it and then plans to take action to fulfill it. It, When you see the similarities, Joseph's response where he's like, this is the word of God and this is what we're going to do about it, just whacks you over the head. With his faithfulness. He's not, he's like, this is going to happen. We've got seven good years, then we're all dead. But, why don't we find someone smart, gather a bunch of food. He's like, got a high administrative gift. You know, he's got these things all sorted out. There's the food together, and we're all going to live, and this is going to be awesome. Because this is happening. And this is a total difference from Adam, who Adam and Eve got totally talked into. No, this isn't going to happen. You're not going to die. 
He wouldn't die. How could a good God do anything like that? And Joseph, you know, sitting there going, well, God spoke, and so we better act on it. Which for us should make us do two things. The first is this. We're supposed to turn to God and say, God, give me a heart that just believes your word and acts on it with faith. Like Joseph. That's what we're supposed to do. God, give me a heart that when I hear your word, I say, that's true. And I want to do something about it to show my faith. Not to earn something, but to show my faith. Right? Okay? Following with me? Be a Joseph. And at the same time, we're supposed to say, I have so not been like this. And I need you to forgive me, God. Because I'm usually Adam. Amen? I usually just waiting for somebody to talk me out of trusting in your word and acting on it. I buy my excuses by the barrel. I get it backed up in a tanker truck and hosed into the windows of my house. Anybody? Somebody? Is it just me? No? Yes? Try me out. Free samples at the door? Anyone? The big difference is that Joseph, probably because of his sufferings, probably because of his loss, he came to the place where it's like, I don't have anything to lose here. So the word of God is precious to me. Speaking of wives getting up here and talking about those of us who suffer according to God's will and trusting ourselves to a faithful creator and doing good, Church, the reality is if we don't suffer, God's word is not going to be precious to us. You can go read Psalm 119, longest psalm in the world, by a lot, like painful long. And it's this acrostic poem, which is not an acrostic poem, which would also be a cool poem. An acrostic poem is where you work through every single letter of the alphabet during a poem. And the guy who wrote this is like, that's not good enough. It's meant to give a sense of completion. Like I've said everything you can say about the subject because I've used every letter in the alphabet to talk about it. But he wants to times this thing by eight. So every section of Psalm 119 starts with the same letter eight times. And then it goes to the next one eight times because he wants to say everything you can say about a subject. And you know what Psalm 119 is about? God, your word is precious to me because I am hurting. That's what the whole psalm is about. Teach me your word because things suck. God, I have been broken and so your word is a treasure to me. I love your law because I don't have anything else to love. This is the whole psalm. And so here's Joseph before you. He doesn't give a rip about anything but God right now because he's because of what he's been through. And, and it is true. Like, you don't... If you can just think about who Joseph was, until yesterday morning, he was imprisoned by this pharaoh. And the cupbearer 
that forgot about him is standing right there. And the captain of the guard, probably Potiphar, who threw him in jail after he didn't stand up for him when his wife lied about him, was probably standing right there. And all... Did he go into bitter mode? Did he sit there going, oh, if I just keep my mouth shut, all my enemies are dead? Did he go into, like, whiny, whingy, all-about-me mode? Well, I know what God's doing and saying. Let's negotiate. Hmm, I want my freedom. I want $10 million in a jet. <laughs> he could have... No, all, it's just, this is what God's saying. This is what you should do. And as somebody was talking with me the other day, it's like, we don't know, he might have just been expecting to go back to jail after this. He's just living for God's word. I'm just here to believe God's word and obey it. Let's switch gears and go to Pharaoh for a second, because I have been so astounded meditating on Pharaoh's life here. This shouldn't have happened, what Pharaoh did. Pharaoh is a god king, most likely, worshipped, and with the power to have whoever he wants killed. We know that, right? What happened to the baker? This is the last time my crusty buns are coming to me extra dry. You gotta dip that thing in oil. I like it when it's crusty on the outside, soft in the inside. And you open that thing up and you can see the steam waves coming out of there. And it gives you a little facial. It's so warm. And you ah, you get to blacken that thing. You're dead. You know, well, he could do that. That's welcome to Pharaoh. Every single person in Egypt lived and died by Pharaoh's command. And so to have some dreams and then to have one of your prisoners who is a slave who is of the race of the Hebrews that you're racist against come and tell you that God is pronouncing judgment against your kingdom and then to respond with humility is almost impossible and you know it is because of how the next Pharaoh responds as you continue to read the story. And when Moses shows up to Pharaoh's uh, court many, many years later, and Pharaoh's like, who are you? Who is this God? Are you, what are, you, you, are we trying to mess up my brick production? Okay, no straw for you. You guys are all out of here. You're dead. Don't, I don't want to see your face again. That's normal. And it just... Pharaoh's whole reaction here gives a picture of what saving faith looks like. Okay, for us. Because most of us are Gentiles, like Pharaoh was. Most of us are people on the outside of like the bloodline people of God, but still getting preached to. And God shows up in Pharaoh's court through this highly offendable situation. He didn't make it easy. And in order for Pharaoh to get saved, to have Egypt get saved, Pharaoh had to humble himself insanely. Friends, let me tell you, if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to humble yourself a lot and all the time. 
let's just think about what Pharaoh did. He finds out there's seven good years coming. Pharaoh's like, oh yeah, give me them seven good years. And then there's seven bad years. And so he hands over everything he possesses to this Joseph, who for our sake is a picture of Christ. Joseph is a foreshadowing of Christ. He's like, not Christ beforehand, but God so worked in his life so that what happened in and through Joseph pictures who Jesus is. And here is Pharaoh, God of Egypt, standing over and above this slave, racially inferior person. And he, what does he do? He says, God has spoken. I give you everything. I give you my house. I give you my family, I give you my nation, I give you my authority. He takes off the signet ring, I give you my glory. He takes the clothes and gives it to him. I give you my public honor. He gives him the second chariot and sends his own servants to go and yell, bow the knee before him. Pharaoh gave Joseph everything he could give him without dying. Because Pharaohs don't, they can't not be Pharaoh. The only way to stop being Pharaoh is to croak. The only way to get off the throne is to have someone kill you or die. And so he he says, except for the throne, which I literally can't give you without dying, I give you everything. That is what salvation is like. You meet Jesus Christ and you say, God has spoken. God has showed me that you're the man because you died for sins and you've been raised from the dead and there's a judgment coming and I I think you're the only one who can save me and so I give you every single thing I can give you without physically dying. And even that's in your hands for us. Even our life is in our hands but you can't worship Jesus by killing yourself. You know, if you want to give Jesus your house, you don't burn it down. You just use it for him. You don't if you want to give Jesus your car, you don't wrap it around a tree. You just lend it out. Everything you can give Jesus without dying. That is what saving faith looks like. And we need to take this seriously. So when I was younger, which was yesterday and every day before that. But when we were living in Vancouver, um, I was taking the bus all the time from school and back. All the time, always on buses. And it was terrible. Buses always smelled like the, and felt like the inside of an old gym bag because it rained all the time. You have all these wet people warming up their rain inside their clothes as the bus goes. It's just terrible. And, but one time I was taking the bus home really late. And so the bus driver, who I think was an extroverted verbal processor, just started talking to me about his life. And I was listening to this story, and the guy was saying, you know, I used to be a mover and shaker in the garment industry, and like the fashion industry. I was making lots of money in it and doing lots of things, but my daughter got sick, and um, she needed me to have a more dependable, predictable job. So I quit the whole thing I was doing there, and now I drive bus. And I could tell as he was sharing this story that he was kind of grieving through the sharing of it. It was a real loss for him to give up his position and his money and the sense of accomplishment to go and drive bus because his daughter got like one of those degenerative diseases and needed him. But while I'm listening to this story, I, my, my soul is telling to me to myself, whenever that works, you've met somebody who gave up his career for 
his sick child, and you can never unmeet this person. So if you find yourself in this place, you have to do this too. Because you've met somebody who did it. Does that make sense? Guys, we've met Pharaoh, a king who gave his entire kingdom up to a despicable person or a despisable person to save his nation and his life according to the word of God, and we can't unmeet him. Would anybody here have more to lose for Jesus than Pharaoh did? Anybody here, like, praised everywhere you go, ride around on on somebody driving you in the Bugatti, if there is another seat to even sit in, in one of those things? Anybody publicly famous? Anybody richer than everybody else? Anybody here have the authority of life and death over everybody you know? And anybody with that much power, that much authority, that much honor? Okay, we've met Pharaoh who did give that all up to glorify God and to do good in the world. And you can't unmeet him. I'm sorry. You know, you thought this was just Father's Day. Just put your time in here and then give Dad the red tie and then we're all good. You go out and maybe he bought barbecue. Saving faith means you give everything to Christ. Everything, everything. You, you give him everything. You take off your authority ring. You give it to Jesus. You take off your best stuff. You give it to Jesus. You say to everyone you know, this all belongs to Jesus now. It's crazy. This is saving faith. Saving faith also confronts that how much God power, how much power and authority God has. It's very unpopular nowadays to believe in things like judgment, if you've ever noticed that, especially in the church. And God speaks to Pharaoh and says to him, uh, in about seven and a half years, a famine's coming, you're, you're all going to be dead, you're all going to lose everything. The plan is, and there's two dreams, so this is going to happen, and you can't stop it. The plan is to reduce everybody to extreme poverty in about eight years. This is God's plan. Stock market crashes, factories closed, no medicine, everybody extreme poverty, nobody's got anything to eat, people eating their children, that kind of stuff. That's coming, and it's, it's, you can't stop it. And you just think if this were nowadays, instead of Pharaoh saying, hey, why don't you become king of Egypt, you know, you'd get the Egyptian theological department responding, thank you very much for your submission to our latest uh, round table on theological discussions. Uh, we feel that uh, your emphasis on, uh, on judgment and um, uh, the lack of food does not uh, stir up feelings of uh, self esteem and hope in uh, amongst our people and so for these reasons we think that uh, you're we're not going to accept your submission and publish it in our latest journal uh, we like to focus on things that make people feel validated secure and like they can fulfill their dreams and their plans and their own identity whatever they plan for that to be and joseph and pharaoh are just good men because when they heard the word of God, they didn't whine or complain or fuss or fight or shake their fist. They just said, we, we, good, thank, thank, praise God for speaking. And then Joseph says, and we can make a plan to deal with this. You know who talked about judgment way more than Joseph did? 
Jesus. You know who talked about judgment more than anybody else in the Bible? Jesus. A few smatterings just from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5.22. Jesus says, But I say to you, everyone that is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the judgment of hell. Yes, you can go to hell for being contemptuous towards your brother. Well, we hear that and say, not me. I'm Pharaoh. I decide. Or do you respond with faith and go, I don't actually want that to be my future. God, how do I get saved from this? A few verses later, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is Christ speaking. If your right hand causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. A little bit later on, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. And this is all true. There is judgment coming. And if you're a typical Canadian, we think about ourselves, yeah, there might be for really bad people, but I'm the exception. Not me. Couldn't be me. I'm trying my best. I'm doing my thing. I'm not that bad. Not me. And Joseph and Pharaoh were good men. Because they didn't stand there going, yeah, but not us. I'm Joseph. I had the coat. And Pharaoh's not saying, not me. I'm Pharaoh. I kill people. They stood there saying, man, we need to take these warnings really seriously and respond really well. And us too. The Bible warns us that the time of judgment is going to be either at our death or at Jesus' return. In Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, it says, For just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear sins for many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. And what this kind of verse tells us is that our life right now is the seven years of plenty. Our life right now, before we die, or before Christ comes, is the seven years of plenty. This, this is, it's a broken world, it's a sinful world, but now is the time where we're deciding how it's going to go when the famine comes. Now is the time where we're deciding how it's going to be when the judgment comes. And the call of Scripture is to say, hey, um, don't think you're the exception, and don't try to fix this on your own. Be like Pharaoh. Just give your life to Joseph or give your life to Jesus. 
And he will see it through for you. That's why God sent Jesus. That's why he sent him to become a baby. That's why he sent him to live the perfect life. That's why he sent him to die on the cross. That's why he sent him to come back from the grave. That's why he sent him to rule over the world. Because now is the short time before we die where we can escape what's coming by handing over our entire lives to the man that God has given us to be our Savior. And that man is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the great thing about Jesus is he actually knows what to do with a human life. Amen? You know, sometimes you can be like, well, I gave my life to Jesus, so everything's going to be boring from now on out. Look, Jesus knows how to live our lives better than we do. Just like Joseph knew how to rule over Egypt better than Pharaoh did. That's why they're looking around going, is anybody going to do a better job than this, than Joseph? He's got the Spirit of God in him, so why don't we just give him everything? It's going to turn out better with him ruling anyways. How much more so Jesus, who doesn't just have the Spirit of God in him, but gives the Spirit of God to those who trust in him. I'm going to say that again because you're not excited enough yet. And I know I'm going a little bit long, but I haven't preached in a month, so you're getting the fire hose a little bit. If Pharaoh looked around and said, let's give our lives to the man who has the Spirit of God in him because he's smarter than us, how much more so for us should we give everything to Jesus who not only has the Spirit of God in him, but gives the Spirit of God to those who trust in him? He will live our lives better than if we tried to do it in our own. Which is why works righteousness, trying to impress God by what we do, trying to make ourselves right with God by what we do, is so stupid. Just dumb. Because Jesus knows how to live our lives better than we could. So to insult Christ by saying, don't worry Jesus, I'll fix this, is just doubling down. On the sinful dum dum. Anybody? Okay. One of the amazing things about this story that is just so good for us to hear is that when trouble comes, we need to know that trouble comes to us. And these warnings, and these these warnings about the future, and there is a final judgment, and there is a cost to sin. When we get warned about this stuff, you know, the temptation's always to be defensive and self-justifying, isn't it? You know, you sit there and somebody starts talking about future judgment, future wrath, and you're like, no, don't talk to me about this. Your thoughts come up, or I want to get out of here. And will anybody notice if I just stand up and throw a chair at this guy and leave through the back? Will anyone, if you just try to do that stuff... We need to know the character of God is when he warns. He's warning us through the person who wants to help. Joseph told Pharaoh, the famine that's going to destroy the world is coming. Why don't we store up some food? And Jesus is the same. I want to read just right before we end. Thank you for your patience. Matthew chapter 11, I want you to hear, I want to point out something about the nature of God. If he corrects, if he rebukes, if he confronts, if he brings trouble, it's always with a good intention and always with the hope of saving and rescuing and making things better. I want to just read from Jesus' own mouth here how he goes from warning of judgment to 
amazing offer of salvation from Matthew chapter 11, starting verse 20. And then after this, the team can be ready to come up. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Ah, denouncing, that's bad, but did not repent. He said, woe to you, Chorazon, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heavens? No, you will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Oh, that sounds terrible. Jesus is a terrible person. I don't want to be part of his church. And then it says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And now here's the words of promise. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Did you you hear what happened there? Whoa, whoa, whoa. To I praise you, God, because you have are on purpose here to come, come, come. I will take care of you. I'll bear your burdens. I will lead you. I will guide you. I'll provide for you. I've got riches of food to see you through the famine. I have got a spirit to put in you to raise you from the dead. I have got power and joy to carry you through every trial. Just come to me, come to me, come to me, and I will take care of you, says the Lord Jesus Christ, raised from the dead for this purpose specifically. So we're going to worship. But while the team's coming up, guys, will will you just feel my burden? There, there is a cost to unbelief. Even if you're a believer, there's a cost to turning away. And there's a cost to not dealing with sin when God's knocking on your door. And there's, all, there's a cost. But it's a cost you don't have to pay because you can give the troubles to Jesus. And so my burden for today is like, let's be a Pharaoh. And let's say, whatever it is I don't want to deal with with God, I surrender. Whatever I don't want to give to Him, I give to Him. My spouse, my kids, my finances, my job, my ministry, my hidden sin, my troubles, my shame. 
Give it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus. The future, the future, the future. Anybody bothered by the future? Give it to Jesus. Do you think Jesus doesn't know more than what's going to happen in the next 14 years? He knows everything. He knows all about the future. Give it to Jesus. Give it to Jesus. He knows how to take anything and make it fruitful. God is with Christ to do you good. Give your life to Jesus. Let's stand and sing.